Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. I'm Karen Swallow Pryor. And the gang is back together. You're listening to Close Reads. It's a podcast for the incurable reader. Unfortunately, well, it is a podcast for the incurable reader. I don't know exactly how to tie this curable thing in, but Heidi and I have been sick, but we're back. We're on the show. Heidi, I don't know if cured, cured is the word, but you're here. I am I'm here. feeling better. I'm recovering. You're turning the from corner. the plague. <laughs> I finally uh, had COVID. <laughs> you it's waited the worst. It's all terrible. this terrible. Now I know what the big deal is. Jeez. COVID's yeah. awful. Well, but you're here. I am been cure. It is curable. <laughs> By the average immune system. (laughs) Um, Karen, how are you? Heidi and I have been battling sicknesses. You seem like you're okay, though. So far, so good. I just got back from five days in Chicago where COVID is like surging. So I'm Mm. like just praying, praying that I escaped it. We'll see. Well, we will be praying for that. We'll be knocking on wood throwing salt over our shoulder or whatever it is, all the different things you're supposed to do. All of them, um, do them all. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, we just need to also shout out our friend, Tim. You know, if you're a long-time listener to this show, you know Tim. He, he's, he's, a, he's a regular co-host here. And just this last weekend, Tim got married. And he's wed. so he's we need to just, man. exactly. We need to just say congratulations to him publicly um, and uh, wish him the best. So Tim, congratulations. And we wish you the best. <laughs> Uh, lots of the listeners were, I mean, we saw there were listeners who were one group in Michigan through their own little literary party for him because they couldn't like be at the wedding or I don't know exactly the scenario, but they threw a party for him or on in his honor. So congratulations to Tim and Galen. And, um, you know, we can't wait to, to uh, celebrate some more with you in a couple of weeks at the close reads retreat, but that's so exciting and, uh, nothing else to say except yay. I know. Big smiles. We're just so, so happy. So happy for Tim. Now, I wanted to bring this up at the beginning because by the time we get to the end of this episode, it may not be the time to talk about happy weddings. <laughs> because... Good point. Because of the end of this, at the end of this section, which is the end of phase the fourth, we are left, we're left hanging a little bit. Things may not be starting out on the, on the, the best way for poor Tess and Angel as they get married. At the end of this section, we are, we are told that she confesses to him her circumstances. He has confessed to her his poor decisions. And they, this is right after they have said, I do, so to speak. And of course, the rest of this section is, uh, um, you, you, the two of you discussed in my absence last week, the beginning of their sort of wooing courting i guess is wooing of her and now we get the we get the the second half of that we get the, the build up to their actual uh, wedding and then these these confessions to one another of course at the end of this section we are all we get is i'll read it she bent forward at which each diamond on her neck gave a sinister wink like a toad's and pressing her forehead against his temple, she entered on her story of her acquaintance with Alec Durbeville and its results, murmuring the words without flinching and with her eyelids drooping down. That's the end of phase the fourth. So we don't yet know how, how Angel responds to her confession. We do know how she responds to his confession. And I wanted to, um, I wanted to ask a question about the structure here. Because on the one hand, this is classic suspense novel writing 101, right? Leave it on a cliffhanger so you want to turn to the next page and begin the next chapter. And if you're anything like me, those of you who are reading probably did immediately begin reading the next chapter because you at least want to know what happens in the immediate aftermath. Um, you know how you, when you're reading the mystery novel or the, the thriller or something and you turn the page just to see if the character has survived that whatever harrowing obstacle has come. Across. And then once you know that they're survived, you're like, okay, I can go to bed now and I'll pick it up from there. So on the one hand, Karen, is Thomas Hardy just trying to create suspense here? Or is there a larger thematic reason why he might have given us in this phase, in this chapter, her response to his confession but not his con- his response to her confession. Does, does the distinction of the question make sense? 
It does. I mean, I, I think it's really both. And um, I know we're not talking about phase the fifth yet, but if you just, you know, look at what he calls that phase, we've talked about that before, you know, that there's, there's a clue there. So, so he, he begins phase the fifth with the consequences of what happens in phase the fourth. Um, again, you can look at the title and it's already a spoiler. Um, right. But, you know, this, this whole phase is filled with suspense because we have Tess trying in her Tessish way over and over to tell Angel what she's been struggling to tell him. And so to me, this whole phase is filled, not just the end, but the whole Mm. thing is filled with suspense. So it's really the most suspenseful. I mean, Heidi and I talked about this a little bit last week. No, four is the is the mid. This is the middle of the book. This is the middle of the novel, and it is really, in some ways, the most suspense mm. suspenseful. And he builds that suspense so powerfully. Yeah, and it we I I I agree with that, and I also think as the suspense builds, we two things happen to us as a reader. At least this is true for me, and I think it's kind of built into the structuring of the novel in such a brilliant way, as you just said, Karen. One, we become more and more invested in Tessa's happiness, Mm -hmm. right? Because she's increasingly distraught. Uh, She keeps trying to do the right thing and being thwarted. uh, and, And she's so deeply tormented. We just want relief for her, right? So in the one sense, we're like, just get married so that you can be happy. Right. Um, but then the other thing that's happening, the parallel to that is that we get little snippets of angels character that are not exactly what we want it to be. Mm. And, and along with that then comes a desire to kind of protect Tess from that while at the same time, just wanting them to get there and get married. And, and it reminds me so much of Jane Eyre and that whole section when they're, when they're engaged and the same kind of very similar kind of thing is happening. It takes a long time. They're engaged for a long time. Rochester is clearly, there's something going on with him. There's a secret that's not coming out. Uh, but we just kind of like want Jane to get married because, you know, that's the next step. Right. And that, that same kind of building of suspense at, while at the same time, a revelation of some kind of darkness, um, that's that's been hitherto unknown in in some mystery uh, to still discover um, is is there, and I just think Hardy succeeds so brilliantly uh, at at producing two opposite feelings in the reader: one, a desire to protect Tess, and two, mm. a desire for just her to be happy and just get married to this guy. Mm. The the Angel Rochester comparison is really interesting. I kept thinking about that as well. And I kept asking, I kept wondering, who is more of a weirdo? <laughs> Rochester, Angel. And uh, I think that's probably not something we can discuss until we get to the end, because we have to talk about some more decisions that he makes first. Do you find yourself, as you're reading this section, and maybe you talked about this for the first half of phase the fourth, do you find yourself saying to her, just tell him? Or do you find yourself sort of uh, leaning towards keep it a secret. <laughs> Heidi, what do you, I'll, I'll invert the, I'll ask you first this time. Yeah. Do you have a lean? Like, I mean, I'm not saying like you're making a judgment, like about a I moral know. choice, but as a reader, what is your gut sort of asking you to say? Cause those are sometimes two different things, you know? I want her to tell him. To just um, sort of take charge, have some like, is it because you want her to, is it because you think there's a moral a moral duty to yeah, do so or I because do think you think there is. like she can take charge by doing so i do think that there's a moral duty to do so and um but it's i have to i have to say my my the reason i sound hesitant in my voice is because i can't unknow what i know mm-hmm. and so yeah. i can't i don't know how much of my of that feeling is because I know it's coming Um, because I think I remember the first time reading it, just wanting her to just listen to her mom and just forget all about it. But granted, I was also a 19 year old girl at the time I was reading it. Um, And I I didn't, there's a lot of things I didn't know. Um, And I was much less virtuous, I hope, than I am now. 
Lord have mercy on me. But I do remember <laughs> wanting her to just keep it a secret the first time I read it. But this time I'm like, get it out in the open and then run in the opposite direction. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, okay. Karen, I want to ask, I, uh, I want you to answer that. And then I want to come back to that last thing Heidi just said. That's really interesting. <laughs> No, I mean, I think, I mean, she, I think she tries, you know, in in her own way. And I, and one of the things I remember Mm. most about this novel, I've I've said this a few times, how I don't really know when I first read the novel, but I just remember my first sense. And one of the most dramatic moments for me in reading this, that where I just felt this sense of, of tragedy and, and, and inescapability is like that when she writes that letter and puts it under his Mm. door. And I mean, like, that's the kind of thing that I would do is like write a letter, (laughs) you know, know, put it, put it in writing. And she, and she really tries and that there's so much drama there when, when she does it. And then he comes downstairs the next morning and she's like trying to read his face and his behavior. And he's acting like everything is normal. And then she finally realizes, well, maybe he didn't get it. And she finds out. And and like that moment just feels like such a, I feel such the weight of time. Um, Like, you know, when something happens and you wish you could turn the clock back and you can't, um, there's just such a momentous weight to mm. that. So I, yeah. I, to me, she, as, as consistent with her character is as much as she knows how um, she tries to tell him and it's like fate gets in the way. And I, mm. I get that. <laughs> yeah. Of course, you know, you could, I'm sure someone, many people have written doctoral theses on, the number of times the word fate comes up in this book, just in the first 384 pages. One thing I was struck by is how first she tries to tell him with the letter, right? She gets the courage to write that it fate intervenes, so to speak, as you put it. But then that little section that I read there, when she finally does tell him it's so the opposite of writing a letter, it's so intimate. He's confessed something to her. And then she seems she's like drawn to him. She, because of his confession, as if she feels like she's in a, it's a safe place, so to speak, the way she presses her forehead against his temple and she murmurs the words without flinching with her eyelids drooping down, like the way that it, he sort of blocks that to use the film, the film term is the, is so fascinating given how much she has struggled with the, with whether or not to tell him. And I'm, I'm, that's really moving that mm-hmm. she gets to this point. Fate has intervened in letting her tell him the way she initially thought she would. Fate or providence or whatever has intervened. And then she thinks because of his confession, she's going to be in a safe space and have this safe relationship such that she can tell him with her forehead pressed against his. And, you know, and then, you know, then there's fallout, of course. but. That's by Hardy. That I just think that's so. It adds to the drama and the tension that by the end of this chapter, she thinks that she is in a place that she can be this intimate with him. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's even there's even a deeper intimacy there than when she finally kisses him and he's like, and the book's like, he finally discovered what it was like when a woman has passion for you or something. <laughs> um, this is even more intimate mm-hmm. than those like, you know, than like her. Semi-aggressively kissing him, or whatever happens in that moment. Uh, I just think that's so well done by Hardy. <clears throat> Heidi, were you going to say something? No, but I would just echo what you said. It's such a moving, such a moving moment, and yet at the same time, Hardy plants those little physical details, right? The diamond mm-hmm. glistening like a, the eyes of a toad. Yeah, there's a sinister wink. Yes, yeah. like there's just. He he puts all of it in his long Victorian sentences and it just really succeeds, I think, brilliantly. Well, I mean, right before that, it says, the ashes under the grate were lit by the fire vertically like a torrid waste. <laughs> Imagination might have beheld a last day luridness in this red cold glow, which fell on his face and hand and on hers, peering into the loose hair about her brow and firing the delicate skin underneath. Like, that's not exactly, I mean, that's a, there's some foreshadowing there, right? There, or some some mood making, at least that you're, you know, he's definitely juxtaposing some the the intimacy of the image with how he's describing 
describing things. Karen, what were you going to say? Yeah, just just one small thing I want to make sure we don't skip because um, going back to her trying to tell him, because after she realizes the letter was misplaced, there's another small attempt that she makes, which is in a completely different spirit. Like she tries to, to write the letter. And then we talked about how she you know, tries, she does tell him in person in this very um, intimate, beautiful way. But um, right after the, the letter on page six, 363 in this edition, um, she says, um, I am so anxious to talk to you. I want to confess all my faults and blunders, she said, with attempted lightness. So again, like even from a different way, she's just trying to say this lightly. And she talks about blunders. And he said, Angel says, no, no, we can't have faults talked of. You must be deemed perfect today, at least, my sweet. He cried, we shall have plenty of time hereafter, I hope, to talk over our failings. I will confess mine at the same time. But it would be better for me to do it now, I think. And, and he won't let her. So she really does try in, in a serious way, in a lighthearted way. But Angel insists on seeing her in this idealistic way. He just cannot imagine that she has any blunders that wouldn't be anything but trivial and insignificant. And he intentionally intentionally does not tell her until they are married and she keeps trying to tell him before <laughs> yes you're right he knows what he has to tell her and he's waiting and he until waits. she can't oh. escape until she can't turn him down and forgive him right and then he so the whole time they both have this thing to confess one he did something intentionally and then hides it from her till they're married she, on the other hand, is forced into something she never wanted and mm -hmm. keeps trying to tell him. Mm -hmm. So how does fate as a theme in this book play into this? Because on the because things happening to you, like versus you having some agency over the choices over your own life and the choices you make is a big thing in this book. So in a way, Hardy seems to be suspicious of the superstitious um, superstitions of the people. And yet we have her trying to do the right thing and him actively trying not to do the right thing. And these things kind of colliding with one another. So does he, what in, do, do at this point in the book, do we, do we sense that there is um, any kind of um, order to Hardy's universe in terms of um, how these things interact with, with one another, whether it's fate versus choice versus, and then the moral order that sort of is the thread that binds those two. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, again, we have to revisit this question at the end, but I, I think Fair. that Hardy is, you know, I, I don't think he necessarily believes in fate in a religious way or even determinism in a strictly materialist or mm -hmm. biological way. Mm -hmm. um, but he does believe in society you know, and culture mm. um, being a kind of fate because of what it imposes on people. And of course, and, you know, in his case, it's Victorian culture, which he equates with Christianity. Um, and so, so I, yeah, I think that he is building the case um, that, you know, that fate, that, that Tess is where she is and in the position she is in and, and will be in because of the fate that society plays you know that they, mm. the society plays the role of fate mm. yeah i agree with that i think that's true what i find so interesting in this novel as as i've been reading it this time is the that there's this inevitability of fate to tess's future and i don't necessarily see the same thing with any other characters mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and I have just been, I mean, it's, it's the book about her. <laughs> that's, mm -hmm. it's, that's the name of the book. That's mm -hmm. the title of the book, everything. Um, so, but it doesn't, doesn't have this kind of like rolling down of deterministic forces outside and beyond control towards Angel or Alec or any of the other agents in her fate, um, which is interesting, particularly because in this section, she does keep trying 
to do the right thing. Um, and there's always this wall. There's always these forces that are, that are pushing back against her. You know, she's, it's, she's the only protagonist in her own story. Mm -hmm. Everything else is an antagonist. Mm -hmm. Um, but I can't quite tell if he's making what, what Casey's making about everything in the whole world, or if, or if it's just that feeling about her intentionally, I don't know. What do you think about that? Nobody else seems to have that whole like being rolled over by the you know winds of or the waves of fate. I almost mixed my metaphors there. <laughs> well, what about the um, other girls that are in love with him? Like, there's something oh, that's a good point. Faded, mm-hmm. it seems in like or 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 maybe not faded, but well, good they are point, kind of David. doomed hmm. to be by their class mm-hmm. or their status to be stuck where they are, and then it's like pardon how I phrase this, but it's like they get a taste of something else when he kisses them. And then the one girl tries to drown herself. And so does it, does, does he have, does the the book almost like makes him seem like this magical character who people come in contact with him and things happen to them. Um, Like they can't either are like won over by his charm or worse. <laughs> um, so Heidi, you mentioned, you used the phrase, um, tell him and run in the opposite direction. Is that now that you're, now that you're uh, an older woman, <laughs> your phrase, um, was that, is that what you're like, tell him the truth and run? That's what, that's your, that's actually not what I think because I think if you're going to run, just run. And then he doesn't need to know your deepest, darkest wound in life. Um, but yeah, but, but he think, has, yeah. But, but here's the thing, like, yes, maybe the, the right answer. She even feels like the right answer is to leave, right? To, to just, to not stay with him. Like, and, but she, of course she believes it's because she is not worthy of him. But is he, you know, I don't know how to put it other than like, does the book see, do you think that the book has there is some sort of inherent like force about him that causes I, I don't know like I'm making it seem mm-hmm. like a magical realism thing or or I don't know like that he's some Greek god or something but there is something about him that seems like he's in he's he belongs in a Greek myth um, right every time someone comes up against him or 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 something's something inevitably they either they will want to they want to die <laughs> he she so hardy addresses that question directly on page 334 uh at the top it says there's hardly a touch of earth in her love for claire and then goes on to describe how much she idealizes him which is partly her um it's partly her her great and trustful love of him uh but he also, so some of that is, is, is in her mind. Um, but he also says here on the bottom of 334, she had not known that men could be so disinterested, chivalrous, protective, and their love for women as he. Angel Claire was far from all that she thought him in this respect. Absurdly far, indeed. But he was, in truth, more spiritual than animal. Mm-hmm. He had himself well in hand and was singularly free from grossness. Though not cold-natured, he was rather bright than hot less Byronic than Shellyan, right? He's not Rochester. He's not a man driven by physical appetites. Um, he's not, he's not a Byronic hero. He's a Shellyan hero, meaning that he is kind of, he's drawn to the sublime, to the spiritual, to the otherworldly. Which um, does explain ideal. his response to her. That's exactly later on, right. Because yes. if he was just driven by his passions, no, no. Uh, I mean, I just kind of spoiled it, but you. Right. It says, though not cold natured, he was rather bright than hot. That's a great description, by the way. Bright, than, rather bright than hot. Less Byronic than Shellyan could love desperately, but with a love more especially inclined to the imaginative and ethereal. It was a fastidious emotion which could jealously guard the loved one against his very self. 
right? This amazed and enraptured Tess, whose slight experiences had been so infelicitous till now, and in her reaction from indignation against the male sex, she swerved to excess of honor for Claire. So the psychology is right on here, right? He is a, he's kind of more of a spiritual man drawn to the ideal. He lives more in his head than in his body, right? Uh, he's not driven by appetites. And so therefore she doesn't feel in sexually encroached upon or, or like anything is going to be repeated that happened to her before. So she begins to feel safe with him. But at the same time, there's another passage that I, I couldn't find. And maybe, you know, you all know where it is when she instinctively understands there's, there's a direct statement that she understands that what he, he has idealized her and what he's telling himself about her in his head is not really who she is. And so she is on her guard all the time. Like some of this is, this makes so much sense to me. Like it's so painful, I think, to read because um, she, you understand that on the one hand, she feels very safe with him because he's not pressuring her physically. But on the other hand, she feels profoundly unsafe with him because she understands she's not there, she can't meet that ideal and it's through no fault of her own. And so she can't quite put her full weight down on the relationship this whole time. And I think her insecurity is, is partly because of her own shame and partly because he's, he's putting out this vibe that like he has an idealized vision of who she is. She knows that's not, that she's never going to be able to meet that idealized vision. And one of the things that complicates that is on 338, where it says that her affection for him was now the breath and life of Tess's being. It yeah. enveloped her as a photosphere, irradiated her into forgetfulness of her past sorrows, keeping back the gloomy specters that would persist in their attempts to touch her. Doubt, fear, moodiness, care, shame. She knew that they were waiting like wolves just outside the circumscribing light, but she had long spells of power to keep them in hungry, hungry subjection there. A spiritual forgetfulness coexisted with an intellectual remembrance. So her affection for him being, you know, being the breath and life of her being is uh, what makes what you're saying extra sort of complicated and adds more pathos to it. Your turn, Karen. <laughs> yeah, I, um, going back to sort of the original question that started this part of the discussion, I'm, I'm looking for it and I cannot find it, but it's, I know it's in chapter 19. This goes, this is the, um, when we were talking about the other girls and the role of, of fate and, and all of that, there's a phrase um, somewhere in chapter 19, I can't find it, um, talking about, uh, it, it's the, the phrase is the ache of modernism. And I think that's key to what we're talking about here, because Hardy is writing in this moment where for, you know, for a couple of centuries now, um, the individual as a concept has been rising and, and individual agency and autonomy has been developing. And so it becomes something, I mean, to go back to what you talked about, David, before about the other girls, like they, you can taste something, you can, you can imagine something being possible that perhaps you couldn't have imagined before, whether in the case of the milkmaids, it's like marrying this wonderful guy, or if it's just, you know, making your own way or choosing your own destiny, however, you know, uh, however you want to put it, this is a relatively new idea. And just, just knowing that it's possible, even if it's only slightly possible, but having it elude you is, um, I think, part of what is meant by the ache of modernism. Um, mm. And so in that sense, I mean, I think that's part of um, the sense of loss and pain that that um, that Tess and these other um, girls are feeling. And it is more of a I mean, Hardy presents it as a female problem more than a male problem because 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 the women still live in a world in which you know the idea of agency and exercising one's will is out there but it's it's so much less available to them in in his rendering anyway the the description of them as avenging a row of avenging ghosts in 31 is really fascinating to me or we sorry i think we maybe we're going to add something there nope nope Go ahead, Heidi. 
No, I want to know what, where is that in, in chapter 31? Oh, page 343. So okay. it's after supper, um, when she reached her bedroom, they were all present. A light was burning and each damsel was sitting up whitely in her bed awaiting tests, the whole like a row of avenging ghosts. But she saw in a few moments, there was no malice in their mood. So maybe that's just a mm-hmm. good writerly metaphor, but also maybe not. Maybe there's more to it. It's at least, there's like a, there's a foreshadowing going on there, it seems like. No, I think I, th- that phrase is amazing. And I, um, I, I think it ties into the idea of that ache of modernism, right? It's just this, this idea that something you think is possible or going to happen. And I mean, it's, well, it's, it's worse, you know, to quote another Victorian, um, well, no, Tennyson would say the opposite. He said, you know, his line, it's better to have loved and lost and never to have loved at all. Right. He's sort of saying the opposite. Mm. Hardy's saying, you know, you don't know, you know, it's better to not know what you could have had or what you lost um, than to lose it. It seems like that's what he's saying here anyway. Yeah. Well, and I also, I mean, the fact that there's three of them and the furies and like, there's, there's a lot of classical illusions, I think. Um, which goes to Tess as this kind of Eve figure, as long as, as well as like an idealized kind of goddess-like figure, um, a pastor, like all of these, like Tess carries the weight, not only from the men in the novel, but I think even from Hardy himself, uh, of carrying kind of these archetypal contradictions mm-hmm of, of femininity and, uh, of, and what men want out of women. <laughs> um, do we want a chaste virgin maiden or do they want an available sexually experienced teacher? And like, there's just this like very complex, uh, mm, interaction of, of feminine archetypes that converge in Tess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and I think it's even hard for our author to sort them out sometimes, which well, is interesting um, for us as the readers, especially coming from a modern time period. But the thing is with Tess, what makes her complicated is that she's neither really of those extremes. She's those are not imposed upon her by men. Right, but right. So she's not the... Well, how did you, the chaste, pure virgin, right. I think you said, but she's oh, also yeah. not really the experienced person exactly. that you're talking about there. Like that's not, a, you can't describe her, her experience that way either. She's not, you know. Like, she doesn't fit the Victorian categories right. or, or today's categories. Right. right yeah. Right. You know, Hardy insists in his subtitle, she's a pure woman, but she's pure, not in a physical, uh, you know, way of, of, physical virginity, but she's also not like the experienced teacher woman either. Right. Yeah. And her society doesn't have a category for that. So does that play into the, the idea of angels, um, angel, uh, kind of idealizing her? Like he, he idealizes her because he has been given, well, I I don't know if I want to say it this way. He's limiting this, the, the scope of his, of possibility for who she can be. And so their only idealization is just one of kind of like the best option there is. Um, But she doesn't fit into any of the the possibilities. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's true. But Hardy's making clear that this is like an angel problem, right? I mean, angel is a character Mm -hmm. um, and he isn't necessarily like everyone else because because I mean Hardy gives us all these other options of, of characters including Tess's mother um and I, I do want to make sure we we kind of look mm-hmm. at her advice to her um in her letter at the beginning of the reading for today in chapter 31 because because this is clearly also part of um her, her mother plays a role in in Tess's fate because she advises her to not tell Um, but it's also interesting. I mean, it's not just, I mean, there's a lot in this novel that's about interpretation, right. As in most good novels. So, so this thing happened to Tess and she interprets it one way. She interprets it in a very, very serious way. She takes it very, very seriously. 
but her mother doesn't take it seriously, right? We've seen that over and over again. And so Hardy is also showing us that so much of what happens and and in our lives and the outcome of our lives um, does depend on how we interpret it. Um, and of course, Hardy is not really mm. buying into certain transcendent objective truths with a capital T that we might. So there's some sense in which he's, you know, I don't think he's quite here, but he's almost saying, you know, he's saying that a lot more is up up for interpretation than than his society would would say. I think that's a, a really good point because one way the story could go here, if Tess was a different kind of person, is that she listens to her mom and never, ever, ever tells anything ever mm-hmm. and probably lives much easier life. But she's, she isn't that kind of person. Mm-hmm. And because she isn't that kind of person, somebody like Angel falls in love with her, right? Because she does have this spiritual quality to her. Uh, and she does have this... Um, this longing for intimacy and love Mm -hmm. and this ability to suffer greatly and love greatly. And it is that in her that Angel is drawn to. Mm -hmm. And if she wasn't like that, he wouldn't have fallen in love with her. She would have just been like some of those other girls, right? Mm -hmm. And, And that's, maybe that's part of that tragedy that we it's partly her it's partly that she doesn't assert herself in many times within this novel but so much of it it's like is almost has this feeling of greek tragedy that because she's an extraordinary person then she's bigger than the world has room for and she's therefore doomed in some way Mm -hmm. um and 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 also because she's so beautiful and appealing and becomes then the magnet and the the vessel for other people for for, for men for specifically men's mm-hmm. um desires well in a way though everybody <laughs> because even because like everybody seems to put some her parents are putting some That's kind of true. not pressure on her but whether i don't know if it's pressure or claim but they're relying on her to you know, they send her off to the to the old mansion to, you know, to the old family to restore their family's name, and you know, even the the milkmaids that she has befriended see her as like this. You know, she's the one who's going to like restore the hope of milkmaids everywhere. <laughs> you know, she kind of like stands in for um, what they don't reckon, what they don't see themselves as capable of being. I just think um, what you said is so important. She is the stand-in, right? Tess becomes the stand-in for everybody's in the novels desires, right? And <laughs> and and she rises or falls according to what they want out of her, not according to herself. It's never on her own terms. It's amazing that he can pull off that pull that off and yet she still is a character. She's right. not just sort of an archetype or like some kind of symbol, but this is, you, you, it, she feels like such a, she feels as lived in as like right. Jane Eyre or Elizabeth Bennett or something like that. Some great, all, you know, the, these great other characters. And yet she also is this, she almost is an archetype for these people, you know, like a living, breathing archetype for what they want out of their life. <clears throat> I want to make sure we also talk about Hardy's um, ingeniousness and um, in, in again, bringing in her background. And we've, we've mentioned this briefly, but, you know, he has Angel um, take Tess to one of her ancestral homes for mm-hmm. this, um, for their, for their honeymoon, for their wedding night. And so he, her, you know, and it's on a sort of a plot level. It makes sense. It works well in terms of setting, but it also is part of the theme because Angel just cannot let go of her um, 
noble background, which he keeps insisting doesn't matter to him. But yeah, he seem, he's so obsessed um, with her background. Um, and so um, there was a place earlier where he brings it up. I can't find it now. Um, but in this, in chapter 34, uh, when they arrive there, um, we find out again, when Hart, you know, his description, Hardy's descriptions, they're, they're lengthy, they're detailed, but they're always laden with meaning. Um, the beginning of chapter 34, they drove by the level road along the valley to a distance of a few miles and reaching Wellbridge turned away from the village to the left and over the great Elizabethan bridge, which gives the place half its name. Immediately behind it stood the house wherein they had engaged lodgings, whose exterior features are so well known to all travelers through the Froome Valley. Once portion of a fine manorial residence and the property and seat of a Durberville, but since its partial demolition, a farmhouse. Like the, the condition of this ancestral home has paralleled Tessa's own family, you know, that her, their lineage has declined and her parents are now, you know, poor rural farmers. Um, Welcome to one of your ancestral mansions, said Claire as he handed her down, but he regretted the pleasantry. It was too near a satire. Like even he sees that. Mm. Um, And then, of course, you know, this whole moody, emotional um, part of the story takes place in a perfect setting. It, it does start to get a little bit of that, uh, like Byronic vibe to it. Right. <laughs> and the, but the portraits and all that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, Hardy, you know, he's a novelist. He uses a lot of tropes that we see in a lot of other, other novels, but, um, but those tropes carry weight and meaning and significance. And, um, and so they're clues to us about what's happening and what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I like the idea that they become like signposts for mm-hmm. readers, you know, mm-hmm. those tropes and those archetypes. Heidi, were you going to just say something? Well, I was going to point out the, I think what's in this particular chapter, chapter 34, um, Angel's very, I think, significant um, thoughts that he has about Tess, about his new bride on the bottom of 372. Uh, as he's gazing at her with this great love, looking at his beloved bride, uh, looking at her silently for a long time. She is a dear, dear Tess, he thought to himself, as one deciding on the true construction of a difficult passage. Do I realize solemnly enough how utterly and irretrievably this little womanly thing is the creature of my good or bad faith and fortune? I think not. I think I could not unless I were a woman myself. What I am in worldly estate, she is. What I become, she must become. What I cannot be, she cannot be. And shall I ever neglect her or hurt her or even forget to consider her? God forbid such a crime. End quote. And I, we've talked quite a lot in the podcast over the last few weeks about turning points for Tess, right? Like moments that Tess has that she could go one way or the other. Uh, and, and, um, and this seems very clear to be one of those moments for Angel. He doesn't know what's coming. He knows he's got to confess something to her and he has heard many times from Tess that she has to confess something to him, but he's having this, this moment of not ideal, but real. He's having this moment when, when his idealized vision of marriage and to this woman is hitting him in the face as, as she is a real person that he is just promised to love and protect and care for, for the rest of his life. And how dependent she is now from here on out ever on him. And he seems to be having a moment of revelation, of self-knowledge, of, of, of embodying of the ideal, right? When the ideal comes down from the head and actually meets the heart and he thinks the right thing and then they have this conversation, and that just struck me so powerfully. It's a sweet moment. It's a very, very sweet moment. But it's a moment that is about to create a crossroads for him. And it's a moment that, of course, happens right after the 
thrice crowing of the cock. And then the mm-hmm. exactly the um right after this, the storm kind of the gathering storm, the ghosts of the or the the pictures on the wall of her ancestors, you know, like this. Yes, it is. I mean, Hardy's not a dummy, that, that Thomas Hardy. And then let's just look at some of the things, the way he tells his story to her. Um, it's just, uh, it's there's just so much irony, irony in it. Like on page 381, when he begins at the bottom, he says, he, when he says, we have, you know, he has reminds her he has to confess something. Um, and she's, you know, she says, she says, you have to confess something and even with gladness and relief. And he says, you did not expect it. Ah, you thought too highly of me. Now, listen, um, put your head there because I want you to forgive me and not be indignant with me for not telling you before as perhaps I ought to have done. Um, and then he says, I did not mention it because I was afraid of endangering my chance of you, darling, the great prize of my life, my fellowship, I call you. Um, and so it's interesting because he, as we've said before, he can't imagine her um, not being the pure virgin he thinks that that she is. Um, and he seems to take his own sin seriously. And yet he also just treats it kind of lightheartedly, like almost like like he doesn't even believe him like he's he's um like he is um what is the word i'm looking for it it just seems like he doesn't take it that seriously but he he is playing as though he does because because while he's talking you know he's the man talking to a woman so of course he has to treat it as though it's some terrible thing does it does that make sense and and yet it, it bothers him enough that he feels like he has to confess it to mm-hmm. her mm-hmm. you know it's like there's that kind of there's this dissonance in him mm-hmm. yes i think he's definitely a character marked by dissonance <laughs> well and that's the difference in some ways at least that we can tell so far between him and alec right now we right, can have right. a big conversation about the differences between alec and angel and we, we will deg- one of yeah, these days <laughs> yeah the varying degrees of uh uh creepiness of each of them i don't know what exactly the word is um evil maybe even um uh villainy perhaps but that's that he at this point anyway that he seems to be a character of great dissonance is what allows us to as as readers not to judge him the same way that we do alec pretty much right away Mm because alec has all the the markings right away of being Mm -hmm. you know villainous and here we're hopeful that that he is that that what she sees in him is going to be somewhat true um and and the dissonances that we get when we're inside his head are one of the things that i think almost ironically allow us to have hope in him mm-hmm. and not to despair of him um as readers at least the first time you read it heidi go ahead i've been thinking a lot about these two men and the it just makes me think so much about, and I've said this on the podcast before about other, other books. So maybe I'm just a bit of a broken record. Um, it makes me think of Aristotle, or excuse me, of Socrates, three parts of the soul, the head, the chest and the belly. Uh, and that there are people who are driven by appetites, like belly people. Right. And that's like Alec. He, he, he lusts after Tess. And so he takes her, right? He has this desire for her. And, um, and so he wounds her with his appetites. Um, and, but on the other end of the spectrum is, is the person of the head, um, the person so driven by the ideal. And, and Socrates would argue that if you are a head person, you're a better person. But I think that we can maybe use something, some, something like uh, Tess the Dervervilles to present an alternative interpretation of Socrates. Um, that a, that a head driven person has just as much power to wound as a belly driven person, because what we see here is that he's so idealized his own image that 
Um, his image of her? That some things, yes. Or his image of, of marriage, his image mm. of a wife, his image of his future, right? Which he, because he's so idealized and is so attached to it, and we see that here um, in this section. Um, and, and we know even Tess feels like he's holding her to that standard. Mm. Um, and, and so we have then with Angel, a person who has potential to create damage because he's such a head person. And Alec has already created this damage from the belly person, from being a belly driven person. And so if you look at it as kind of two opposite ends of this spectrum, and then there's Tess just longing to be loved by somebody from the heart. Mm. And that's where she is, right? She always just dwells in the heart. I love that analysis that's really helpful and apps for these three characters it really works well okay that brings us to the end of this section so ed do you have any final thoughts either of you while you're thinking i'm just going to kind of explain what we're going to do with the schedule next week we are going to be discussing phase the fifth the whole phase the fifth so we divided up phase the four fourth because this is kind of like a it worked out because heidi and i both got sick <laughs> from a reading perspective but i i wanted to divide up be able to focus in on parts of this, their uh, courtship or whatever. So I think it worked out. But we're going to talk about all of phase the fifth next. Then we're going to have uh, a week off. Uh, that's uh, We've got the close reads retreat and Karen's got some things going on as well. So we're going to take that week off. So there will be no episode that week. That's the week of, I believe that, that Friday when the episode would normally drop, that's the 10th, I believe. So then the week after that, we're going to talk about the rest of the book. So you'll have two weeks after next week's episode to read uh, the sixth and seventh phases. So next week, phase the fifth week off. Then we'll talk about the book as a whole, the week, uh, the, the week of the 17th. And then we'll do the Q and a, which will also allow us to look at the book as a whole. So we'll have two weeks to look at the book as a whole, including your Q and a. So again, for next week, that means phase the fifth. And then we'll remind you of the rest of the schedule at that point. But for those of you who want to, Make note of that. That's what we're going to do. All right, Heidi, final thoughts on this section on phase the fourth before we get into what amounts to basically the second half of the book. No, that was my final thought. I have no more Socrates after quoting Socrates. <laughs> okay. Karen, what about you? I guess as we move in uh, toward the end, I just want to encourage everyone. I mean, there will be a lot of ups and downs um, and disappointments, but just look for the way that Hardy humanizes the characters all of the characters he really mm. makes them complicated and um and again i i do think in that way he replicates real life because because we're all we all have dissonances and we are we're, so much of what we think and do is based on interpretations that could be correct or incomplete or incorrect um so just I, I just think Art Hardy's brilliance as a painter of human nature comes out in most in the in the last half of the book. It's hmm. a good good pro tip there. <laughs> well, thanks to you both, Karen. Thank you for making the time, uh, Heidi. Thanks for uh, uh, you know getting out of bed <laughs> and then doing this. And uh, once again, congratulations to Tim and Galen. And um, don't forget, next week, phase the fifth. Then we'll take a break. Then we'll do the rest of the book. So uh, with that, for Karen Swallow-Pryor and for Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.